Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible mindfulness teacher, Megan Prager. Hello, Megan, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Zach. Today, we're going to be talking about self-compassion in our daily lives. And for those that don't know, Megan Prager is the co-founder of Mindful Labs and the Compassion Programs Director at UC San Diego for Mindfulness. She has many mindfulness certifications, including a mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor and mindful self-compassion. In addition to teaching mindfulness and compassion programs, Megan specializes in developing and delivering trainings for Fortune 500 companies, as well as for educational, healthcare, and academic settings. Megan believes through compassionate awareness, individuals are able to utilize one of the best resources they have themselves. And how are you today, Megan? I'm doing well, Zach. Thank you. Yeah, I'm uh, full. (laughs) (laughs) Just had a holiday with friends and family and feeling full and grateful. Indeed. We are recording this the day after Thanksgiving. So I too am (laughs) full of both gratitude and family interactions and delicious food. And I appreciate you coming on. And I'm really excited for our show today. We're going to be talking about love and compassion and also mindfulness. And it's quite interesting to me, the explosion of interest there has been in mindfulness lately. I feel like Just a few decades ago, meditation was some esoteric tradition that was kind of weird and only hippies were interested in. But now it's being taught and practiced across so many places, schools, companies, even the government will bring it into all different areas, including the military. And I'm curious, what do you attribute to like mindfulness's just recent rise in popularity and usage? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I can speak from the Western perspective, and it has been in the rise in the Western culture. And I think there's two things contributing to this. The two things that I'm thinking of is one, just the explosion of research that's coming out and uh, research being done on mindfulness is quite compelling. See that mindfulness practice, it decreases the effects of anxiety, depression, psoriasis, OCD, increasing empathy and spirituality and well-being, improving focus and concentration. There's there's a whole host of, of benefits that are quite compelling. So I think Did you the, say psoriasis? Yes. <laughs> yes. Decreases the effects of psoriasis. That's wow. right. Yeah. How what's the mechanism there? Because it seems to me meditation is just a simple like mental exercise, for example. Yeah, well, you know, I I think that there's, I I can't speak to the exact research around that, but, you know, knowing the effects of how it can um, calm our minds in the midst of difficulty or painful chronic conditions, I think we're seeing a lot of research being done on chronic conditions and pain and the decreases in chronic conditions and pain as a result of that. 
So it, it, it's really um, an exciting time to be in the field, to see the research coming out. And as a result, I think a variety of people in different settings are wanting to bring mindfulness practice into their place, into their context. And um, I suppose the other, other piece of this too is also just technology <laughs> in the internet. We're more connected than ever. And with that, people have access to teachers and practices that they may not have had access to previously. I teach at UC San Diego Center for Mindfulness, as you mentioned, and then also at the Center for MSC. And daily, they have uh, virtual community practices. You can hop online, practice with a really experienced teacher, and then talk about it. So I think just the accessibility and the research has really helped buoy mindfulness in Western culture. It's funny because I was going to make a plug at the end for our upcoming Mindful Self-Compassion course, but it's coming up right now. <laughs> and because for our <laughs> listeners that don't know, on January 5th, Megan will be teaching an, an amazing eight-week Mindful Self-Compassion course. And we invite you all to join us because it's based on the two things that you just mentioned is that first, the course is based on empirical research done by Kristen Neff and Dr. Christopher Germer. So it's scientifically based and verified and empirically supported. And the other piece that you mentioned, the technology and the internet is the course is online. So anyone can join us from all over the world. And we'll talk more about that at the end. Let's stick in this topic of mindfulness for now, because you are a mindfulness teacher and you've taught in a variety of different places and locations and to different populations too. So I'm curious, what kind of impact have you seen that mindfulness has on people's lives and general well-being? Yeah, gosh, I feel so fortunate to have had a front row to witness the benefits mindfulness has brought into people's lives. And, and that includes my own, which I'm happy to share about. But, you know, I teach courses in uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindful self-compassion, as you mentioned earlier. And these are eight-week programs, and they can also be, at least the MSC program can be a five-day intensive. And I think what we find over the course of these classes is people develop this capacity to ground themselves when they start to feel overwhelmed, this capacity to turn towards their difficulty with more curiosity and less judgment, which is such a skill, and to be kinder to themselves in the midst of their struggling. We see this over the course of participants taking these classes. A student of mine was in my class five years ago who wrote to me to express just her gratitude that she was able to take the class prior to the pandemic happening. She felt like she had the tools and the capacity to be able to navigate so many of the unknowns we're all experiencing with a little bit more ease. You know, Not, it wasn't necessarily easy, but there was more ease for her. So it's, it's, it's powerful to witness. It is really powerful and it is really helpful for that resiliency. As you mentioned, life is going to throw strange, challenging and unexpected situations our way. And that mindfulness is almost this, I want to say protection against the ups and downs and vagaries of life affecting us so much and allows us to remain rooted in kind of just a peace of mind. 
throughout these challenges. You're so right about that. You know, I I think about my own experience with being taught the tools and way of being of being aware and being more compassionate. And, um, you know, when I was younger, I used to struggle a lot with anxiety and depression and was actually in and out of various hospitals and treatment centers. And when I learned how to work with my mind and not feel like my mind was working against me when I could meet myself with more curiosity and understanding and uh, support. I was so empowered and encouraged by that way of being. I knew I needed to share it with others, which is you know why I'm doing what I'm doing today, but also how I was able to really navigate the storms in my life that were anxiety and depression and come out on the other side. I've gotten to witness it from students, the benefits, but also fortunately for myself too. And it's, it's a great gift. I love that. You mentioned we shift from a mind that works against us to a mind that works for us. And I love that. It's almost just a more common sense way of saying the very common phrase that we want to make the mind a good slave, but a terrible master. (laughs) Let's move a little bit into the compassion piece, because one of the things I find very interesting, and it was particularly interesting when I was starting the Learn to Love podcast, and I was looking for quote unquote experts on love or simply people that knew a lot about cultivating love and, and how we can bring more love into our lives is I found many people were kind of rooted in a tradition of mindfulness or at least connected to mindfulness in a way that they found it very useful in their practice and in their lives. And even just recently, I had a podcast guest reach out to me and they have a new book about how mindfulness really helps our relationships. And I'm curious about this connection. Why do you find that a practice like mindfulness and something like compassion or love often go hand in hand. I love it. I've heard different sayings how mindfulness and compassion are connected. I've heard that they are best friends. (laughs) I've heard that they do a beautiful dance together. I've heard that they are each a wing of a bird and that together the wings allow the bird to fly. You know, mindfulness and compassion, when they are in full bloom, they contain each other. They hold each other. So we we can't have uh, mindfulness. We can't really fully open or be aware of what's here, particularly if what's here is difficult, if we don't have some of the safety or support that compassion creates. And we can't respond to our suffering or another person's suffering with compassion if we're unaware or not mindful that the suffering is there to begin with, Right. So they both really hold and support each other. And, you know, often I think about, uh, you know, with mindfulness, starting with awareness, we can become aware of what's there. And then how do we meet what's there with kindness? The compassion can just so naturally follow, but they, they really both go hand in hand beautifully, very much best friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love the metaphors as well. Best friends, wings of a bird. And I'm imagining this flower when you mentioned how when they are both in full bloom, they contain each other. Yeah. So our topic for today is not just mindfulness, not just compassion, but mindful self-compassion. 
So tell us about this shift of what it looks like to not extend compassion to simply others, but also to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really including ourselves. We keep offering compassion to others. We're just adding ourselves into the mix. And that's what we're doing in this, this mindful self-compassion course. This course was developed by doctors Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, who are incredible teachers. And they've created this highly experiential program that teaches the different practices, exercises, meditations uh, to support a more kinder and skillful way of being with yourself in the midst of difficulty. So the essence of mindful self-compassion is, can you treat yourself with just as much kindness as you would treat a dear friend when things go wrong? That's, that's the essence of it. But there's, of course, a little bit more to mindful self-compassion than that. There's actually these three components that this course is helping participants cultivate over eight weeks And the three components of mindful self-compassion tend to be the three opposites of what we typically do when we make a mistake, our experience of setback, our failure. So often when we make a mistake, we judge ourselves, we beat ourselves up, uh, we isolate, we think I'm the only one, what's wrong with me? And we ruminate. And I have been an expert ruminator in my life. (laughs) I can rehash and repeat the story or situation over and over in my mind. So the three components of self-compassion are actually the three opposites of these things. So mindfulness, the first component, is the opposite of the rumination or over-identification. Common humanity, the second component, that's the opposite of isolation. And self-kindness is the opposite of self-judgment. And it's a balanced awareness. We're not ignoring our pain, but we're also not over-identified or lost in it. Can't tell you how profound this is in the midst of difficulty to remember, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not the first or the last person to make a mistake or experience a setback or for life to not go according to the plan. I'm not alone. There's nothing uniquely wrong with me. So important to remember that. And then the self-kindness piece, I mean, this is really what we're learning, looking at ways uh, that we can cultivate a kinder language, a kinder tone, a kinder behavior, uh, more supportive behaviors in the midst of our difficulty, rather than beating ourselves up or tearing ourselves down. So those are, yeah, the, the three components of, of mindful self-compassion. And the, the great news is it can be all cultivated through practice. I love that. And this is the first time I've heard of these three aspects as antidotes to our common patterning. And I really love them. And I just want to repeat them for our listeners. We use mindfulness to get over our rumination strategies. We use common humanity to overcome the isolation. And we use kindness to cultivate non-judgment, the opposite of judgment. And I want to go into more of those, but I want to go back to that question and really the essence of mindful self-compassion that you mentioned at the beginning along the lines of, can you treat yourself with just as much kindness as you could a dear friend? Because I almost imagine the listener being like, I wish, (laughs) (laughs) or wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. And it's so interesting how 
easily and how often we have this incredibly harsh inner critic. And I'm kind of curious, where do you think the inner critic comes from? And for that person who does struggle with treating themselves with just as much kindness as they do a dear friend, what is your general advice? Some people really identify with an inner critic. Um, Some people don't identify with an inner critic. And that could be because perhaps they truly don't have an inner critic. Or that could be because perhaps maybe they haven't explored that aspect of themselves or are, are able to recognize that as a potential voice and that there's room for another voice. We, we don't know. But just to to name that and also that the inner critic sometimes is not necessarily a voice for people, but a more of a somatic experience, like the sense of being up against a wall or kind of a sense of deflation. So so just to, you know, name these are some of the experiences people report with the inner critic and, you know, where that inner critic comes from, we, we talk about this in MSC a lot. We we ask the class, you know, do you think that there's any value to the inner critic and you know people report a variety of things that you know uh, maybe it motivates me to do better or um you know it's it's uh, i'm going to beat uh, others to the punch by criticizing myself first it would be less painful you know people report all these kinds of things generally what's underneath that is that there's uh, the inner critic wanting to protect us in some way there might be some redeeming value to the inner critic in that it's trying to keep us safe or protected, even if the the methods are unproductive, right? <laughs> so, so I had a, a student share that the the inner critic was she was driving actually, and she was texting while driving, and almost got into an accident. And she's okay; everybody is okay. But uh, in that moment, uh, she she dropped her phone and was like, "You idiot!" and and you idiot isn't particularly help saying that isn't particularly helpful or kind in that situation, but she was able to recognize that what's underneath that message that the inner critic was saying, you idiot was you can't do that. Don't text or drive. It could cause you harm. It could cause people in the car harm. That's what's underneath you idiot. So, so you could see how there's desire for safety underneath that kind of criticism But it's also worth naming, you know, you're asking about where does it come from? For some people, there is no redeeming value underneath the inner critic. And that's if the inner critic is the internalized voice of somebody from your past, maybe somebody from childhood, like a caregiver who was hurtful or neglectful to you. There is no redeeming value underneath that kind of self-criticism. That's incredibly painful and have to offer ourselves great kindness and compassion for that. You know, sometimes with that kind of self-criticism, it was a survival strategy for children not to stand up to that voice or say, hey, you can't talk to me like that because that might get them into even more trouble. So the survival strategy was adopting that voice and having that voice become their own. So that takes some practice and want to encourage people who find that to be their inner critic to make sure that they're working with a therapist or a trauma specialist because that that takes a little bit of time and practice and rewiring to 
release the kind of grip of that voice and help them really land in the support of their own compassionate voice. We, we, we start to touch on that in the MSC program, but it's also worth encouraging people to get support outside of the class as well. Yeah, the word kindness keeps coming up for me and how we can bring it more into our lives. Because when you mentioned that person who made the mistake and then found this voice in their head that said, you idiot, I was thinking how harsh that is and how harsh much of what the things we say to ourselves can be. Like, I can imagine that you could be filled up with a number of things like you idiot, you failure, you terrible person, you. And I'm thinking about the opposite and what that might look like to just be a lot more kind to ourselves. So when you mentioned how the three components are mindfulness, common humanity and kindness, how do we bring more kindness to ourselves? Well, you know, it comes back to, and I think you you asked this a little bit earlier, Zach, and I, I don't know that I addressed it, but this whole idea of, you know, so how do we treat ourselves like a dear friend when things go wrong? And this is actually a practice that we can do is in our times of difficulty and our times of when we've made a mistake and we're feeling like you idiot to bring to mind somebody that um, we really care about or somebody uh, that we consider a really dear friend and ask ourselves, what would I tell my dear friend? What would I do or say or offer to them? Maybe it would be some words of encouragement, a reminder like, hey, you're doing the best you can, or that was tough. I'm so glad that you had the strength to be able to navigate that the way you did. You know, so if we can think about a dear friend that was in the same situation as us, what would we say to them? That may be a way to access kindness and perspective in these difficult moments where we may not otherwise be able to. So there's, I guess, a couple different ways we can think about a dear friend that was in that same situation. What would we tell them? Or maybe we can think about what would a dear friend tell us in our situation? Sometimes it works, you know, one perspective or the other can it can work for somebody. It's uh, multiple ways to look at this. But that can really offer a sense of perspective and kindness in the midst of mistakes or troubles. I love that. I love just thinking about, well, what would a very good friend tell you in this situation? And of course, they would never say the words that we tell ourselves. They would tell us it's okay. Everyone makes mistakes and different things like that. So if that's kindness, and we already talked about mindfulness, let's move on to this final piece of common humanity. And I've been thinking about it a lot lately because I do feel like, and it's easy to feel like we are living in a more divisive world. I think although social media has connected many of us, as more and more research is coming out on how it creates polarization through its algorithms, people say and do more outlandish things and it gets more comments and likes and different things like that. So how... Can we feel in touch with our common humanity? And I'm thinking about when it's hard, when people have very different beliefs and it could be political, but it could be in other areas of life too. It's so hard. (laughs) (laughs) I just just want to land in that. I, I really, this is... This is a great question. This is the money question, if you will, um, and and a growing edge for me. I'm I'm right along with you and looking at how do we do this? How do we have more compassionate interactions? Um, which doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with people, right? But how do we have 
more fruitful and um, supportive interactions. And, you know, you, you kind of hinted here on the this last piece in MSC, this common humanity. And I think you're right. You know, I'm, I'm still exploring how do we have compassionate interactions, but I think this common humanity piece is huge in this. We are more likely to have compassionate interactions with others if we can see how we are connected to or related to another. And this is where common humanity can help us. So, you know, in self-compassion, I talked about common humanity being captured in this phrase of I'm not alone. So we're reminding ourselves how we're like others, right? I'm not alone. Others would feel this way too. When we're looking at having compassion for another, the common humanity piece of that can be summed up in this phrase of just like me. This person is just like me. So we're looking at how others are like us in terms of creating common humanity to have compassionate interactions for another person. So this idea of just like me, we're connecting on our basic universal human needs, not necessarily wants, right? We may, like this person is not just like me in terms of their political beliefs or, (laughs) you know, what they're doing in the world. But this person is deep down just like me in their wish to be happy, right? That's a a basic universal human need, the wish to be free from suffering. This person is just like me in their concern for the future and their desire that their loved ones be well. So if we can start tapping into how we're connected in terms of our basic universal human needs, that I find can help soften the heart a bit. And again, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're buddy-buddy, that we agree with each other, (laughs) that everything is all good, right? But when we soften the heart a bit, I find that that can really help reset our physiology, can help us tap into being able to respond to another rather than getting lost in so much reactivity when we see how we're alike. And that can lead to a more fruitful dialogue in the midst of these more divisive uh, dialogues and uh, interactions that we're having. Yeah, listening to you reminds me of a few things. One is the power of nonviolent communication, which is a communication technique designed to get into those universal human needs. Although our methods can often contradict, although our desires can often contradict, underneath it all, we all want the same thing, safety, security, happiness. And I'm thinking about how the Dalai Lama is quoted to have said that his religion is actually kindness. And from a Buddhist perspective, along with our search for happiness, is none of us want to suffer and none of us want to be in pain. Yes. Yes. And, you know, we have different ideas of how to do that, you know, is what ends up happening and where sometimes things get divisive. So if we can land underneath that, remembering how we're like, that can be a more helpful way to engage with each other. So our topic for today is not just self-compassion, but self-compassion in our daily lives. So let's talk about that. How can we turn self-compassion into a daily practice? Yeah, Zach, there's 
there's two ways, uh, and maybe even more than that. <laughs> just, I'm just going to name two ways that we can really cultivate self-compassion. And again, I, I, I can't emphasize this enough that this is a trainable skill and way of being. We're not just like born with a certain amount of compassion and that's it. What we do can help us develop a more compassionate way of being for ourselves and another and so the two ways of cultivating self-compassion that we can look at is formal practice and informal practice. And what I mean by formal practice is practicing meditations. We know that meditation is a way of training the mind to be more loving and compassionate. So sitting down, laying down, standing, whatever it is, setting aside a period of time to practice meditations, and there's different kinds. There's, you know, in the MSC program, there's affectionate breathing meditations, there's loving kindness meditations, there's a giving and receiving meditation. These are all ways to cultivate a kinder way of being. So that's the formal practice. But then, of course, informally, we can cultivate self-compassion in everyday life by just noticing when we're struggling and responding with kindness. So any opportunity that we notice like, oh, that was tough or, oh, man, I made a mistake there or ah, that person's comment really hurt me, that can be our little cue to offer ourselves something kind. And maybe it's like I mentioned earlier, thinking about, okay, what would I say to a dear friend who is feeling the same way I'm feeling in this moment? That might be a way to access it. Maybe it's offering ourselves a supportive touch in those moments, right? These these are things that can be done in a matter of seconds. It doesn't have to be like sitting down and doing a 15-minute meditation. Maybe it's asking ourselves, what do I need? And that's the foundational question of self-compassion. If we can ask ourselves this multiple times a day, we'll find our day is better. What do I need? And beginning to move towards perhaps behavioral self-compassion aspects, things that we just know nourish us and fill our cup, right? So when I, I was asking myself earlier, what do I need? Almost always the answer for me when I ask myself that is, I need to be outside. I need a little <laughs> bit of sunshine. I mm -hmm. need like the cool breeze. I need flowers, you know, going outside and giving myself this resource and this gift of, of being out in nature, even if it's just brief for, you know, a minute or so, um, that can be a way to really resource myself during the day when I'm struggling and uh, is a way to practice self-compassion. So, you know, it's it's meditation, but it's also just practicing things that we know nourish us and fill our cup. Nature, petting the dog, getting a warm cup of tea, calling that person that you just love and adore. Those are self-compassionate practices too. When we intentionally notice we're having a difficult moment and respond with kindness, any of those ways. I love your example of walking in nature, just getting outside because it's simple, but it has a tremendous impact. Yes. And I love the example. So I'm wondering if you could give our listeners another example to help them kind of concretize what we've been talking about more in the abstract of a situation that could happen or might happen or has happened and how you would use mindful self-compassion in that situation. Oh, <laughs> I've got plenty of examples personally. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I I uh, I have pl 
plenty of mistakes to draw from for these for the, an example. Um, actually, Zach, you know, I'm just thinking about pe- people who are listening to this won't know this, but I had to reschedule on you for this podcast. We had a date planned. And I contacted you really last minute saying that I, something had come up and I couldn't make the date of our podcast. And that, I mean, that was a moment of, of struggling for me. Uh (laughs) I I thought, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to do this. It was kind of that sense of, oh man, not again. You know, I don't, I I have a, a four month old daughter right now. So I'm, I'm really learning uh, how to go with the flow, if you will. Um, And uh, two things really helped me, I think, in that moment, right? When life wasn't going according to the plan, it was, well, one, your response. You were so generous and kind and willing to reschedule. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the second one was, you know, for me in that moment, when I'm when I'm just like disappointed, I, I have to do this last minute canceling. Uh, again, it was, it was the pausing and asking myself, okay, if my sister who I love and adore had the same mistake, you know, what would I tell her in this moment? And it, it was just this very clear reminder of, I would tell her she's doing the best that she can. And so again, just another way to access, you know, that perspective and that kindness. The returning to the breath, you know, I mentioned best friend earlier. I, I have a colleague that says, you know, breath is the best friend. It's with you wherever you go. It's always there for you, ready to support you, supporting you in this moment just by breathing. So to be able to return to the breath, to offer myself a couple of deep breaths, which again is helping kind of reset my physiology when I'm feeling a little overwhelmed or activated, being able to kind of come back into that parasympathetic system to ground, that helps get the prefrontal cortex back online, which is really helpful in the midst of when we're trying to recover from a mistake or think about what to do or say next. So I find through offering myself kind words, through tapping into my breath, these are things that I can do in a matter of seconds that are always available to me. And were really helpful when I had to cancel on you, <laughs> in addition to your kindness. Zach. Well, I definitely don't want my <laughs> podcast to end, add any more stress to your life. I feel bad that it was a source of suffering that you had to give compassion to. But <laughs> oh, not at all. It was, it was for, for practice. It was such a great, I mean, it's such a great example in this context. And this is life, right? Like these things come up as humans. We all have this and it's how can we respond kindly? Because mindfulness and self-compassion aren't going to take away the suffering, but it's going to give us a resource to meet ourselves with a little bit more skill and ease. Absolutely. And I also really love your mantras. I love the just like me mantra that you mentioned before. And I love, you didn't explicitly say it was a mantra, but you said she's doing the best she can and it's okay. (laughs) <laughs> and I think we can apply that to so to ourselves as well. I'm doing the best I can and it's okay. It feels so good in the body, you know, just like listening to you say that I'm tapping into how does that feel in the body when I hear that? And it's just what I need, just what I need to hear. And again, remembering that that is, that's the question of self-compassion is what do I need? So when we land in those things that feel like, ah, oh, that's what I needed. You've landed in self-compassion. So. You mentioned at the very beginning of the interview on the science that's coming out around how beneficial mindfulness is. And there's also a lot of science behind the benefits of mindful self-compassion. So 
what are some of the differences that researchers find in people who are highly self-compassionate, either naturally or through doing programs? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the things when people people want to know about the community, the self-compassion community. And one of the things that is always so heartening uh, to witness is the amount of compassion that people have for others in the self-compassion community. And I think it's a fear people have when they start exploring self-compassion, or maybe that's even preventing them from coming into the class is like, is this selfish? Like, is this just going to be all about me and I'm not going to have any care or compassion for others? And what we found is, and what we know is that uh, self-compassion doesn't mean that we can't be caring or compassionate for others. It's just including ourselves in the mix. And researchers have found that self-compassionate people um, are more supportive in interpersonal relationships, are less jealous, are more likely to compromise in conflict, and are more compassionate towards others. So you know, while it's a fear that maybe uh, somehow this will be taking away from my compassion for others, actually it's the opposite. And if you think about it, when we are compassionate towards ourselves, we are resourcing and taking care of ourselves in a way that'll allow us to more sustainably take care of others, right? If we can just give compassion out and out to others and not in towards ourselves in the short term, but in the long term, that'll always lead to burnout if we're not taking anything in. So when we are practicing self-compassion, it's a sustainable way to have compassion for others. And we benefit too. Um, so, so I guess just really wanting to highlight, you know, the compassion for others piece, um, you know, and Chris and Neff did, uh, you know, at least three studies that I know of in 2013 that demonstrate this. And I think it, just to really clearly say that with self-compassion, we're not pretending things are other than they are. We're just not harshly berating ourselves when we've made a mistake. So we need to own up to our mistakes. We need to apologize if we've offended somebody. We don't need to harshly berate ourselves when these things happen. And because we're not harshly berating ourselves, it's a little bit easier to say I made a mistake, right? I think that, and that's where, uh, I believe it was Leary and colleagues in 2007 uh, found uh, that people were more likely to admit a mistake. So uh, I should add, you know, um, all this research is up on Kristen Neff's website, selfcompassion.org. So for people who are really interested in self-compassion research, we'll go over a little bit of it in class together, but it's also, uh, there's a wealth of it online too. That's so hopeful that people who practice and become more loving to themselves end up more loving to others as well. And when you mentioned like this isn't a uh, part of coming up with more excuses, I was thinking about kind of the challenges and obstacles along the way. And I'm almost imagining in my head two people. One is the tough guy, <laughs> like who hears words like, oh, be kind, say kind <laughs> words to yourselves and soften your heart. And he thinks that's kind of like, I don't know, it's emotional and something for, I'm just going to say like wimps to do. Yeah, that's right. And... You know, it's too mushy for me. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm also thinking about somebody who hears, you know, any sort of loving towards oneself and thinks it's selfish. 
And I'm just, yeah, kind of curious about how you might imagine overcoming people who feel resistance and obstacles to these practices we've been talking about. It's such a great question, Zach. And I have to say, like, I came to this program, the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, kicking and screaming. I thought, one, it sounds really California hippy dippy. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Self-compassion. And two, I was afraid that if I wasn't beating myself up, I would never achieve or be at my best. So I had uh, I had this fear, you know, this California hippy dippy is kind of along the lines you're speaking to of, you know, is this kind of weak or fluffy in some way? And that also this fear that, you know, is self-compassion going to undermine my motivation? And, you know, just to speak to this last one, and then I, I want to address that this idea of it being weak, because we see oh, there's a lot of people who are high achievers and fearful of, of coming to this class and think, well, if I get rid of my inner critic, you know, then what? But the problem with the inner critic is that when we are critical of ourselves, we're our own victim and our own attacker, which sends us into fight, flight, freeze, stress, reactivity. And it is hard to think openly, creatively, logically. It's hard to bounce back from failure or setback when you're spending your energy beating yourself up. So while self-criticism, it might uh, light a fire underneath you in the short term to get something done or to motivate yourself, in the long term, if we're always using self-criticism to motivate ourselves, we're going to burn out. And again, I mean, they found that that self-compassionate people are no less likely to have high personal standards. They just don't beat themselves up when they fail, which means they're less afraid of failure and more likely to try again. And this is the essence of resiliency. So this is a great news for those of us who really, who, you know, want to do well and want to motivate ourselves. We can actually motivate ourselves from a place of compassion rather than criticism. And there's a whole class that we do on this. But to also come back to your really important question about this idea that is self-compassion weak or, or fluffy or passive in some way, when we think about what self-compassion is, it's a response supportive response in the midst of difficulty, right? And there's nothing weak about that. They've actually found that self-compassionate people are better able to cope with tough situations like divorce and trauma and chronic pain. And so I think what is important to say here is that there's really two faces of compassion, two sides of self-compassion, both really important. There's what we call the yin and the yang, right? So the yin side being self-compassion can have this soothing, nurturing, validating side, which I think a lot of us think of when we hear self-compassion, right? But there's also the yawn side of self-compassion, which is about protecting ourselves, providing for ourselves, motivating ourselves, putting our foot down, saying no, standing up to injustice. That's compassion too. And a really important side of self-compassion, it can't be if it's about the alleviation of suffering, it can't just be soothing and nurturing. It's got to have a protective side, right? A courageous side to it. And that's a piece that we're also is interwoven throughout the program and important for people to know when they're thinking, gosh, is self-compassion just this weak uh, California hippy dippy thing? There's a very strong side to compassion too that we need to tap into. 
That's such an important distinction because I too know many people who are very compassionate and as a result, they're extremely motivated to do incredibly important work in the world for social justice, for the environment and protecting marginalized and supporting marginalized people in the world. Because when we do open our heart up to more people in the world, more countries in the world, more creatures in the world, we are inevitably motivated to act to help these people. Absolutely. You're absolutely right that. And, you know, if you think about, too, what we're talking about earlier, that, you know, self-compassionate people are more likely to take greater personal responsibility for their actions and apologize if they've offended somebody. I mean, this is important in, in justice work also, right? Like if we have this capacity to really acknowledge and own up where we've experienced or done maybe harm, own up to it so we can do better. It's a helpful way of holding our energy and supporting other people in the world. So there's so many important reasons for ourselves and also for others to be practicing self-compassion. So before we finish, we do have to talk about our upcoming Mindful Self-Compassion course, which will be live and online starting January 5th, 2022. And it's available to anyone in the world and anyone can sign up at the website, theheartcenter.com, the-heart-center.com. So for people unfamiliar with the eight-week Mindful Self-Compassion course... It's intense, it's in-depth, it's incredible. But in the short time that we have, Megan, what is the course about and who might be interested in taking it? (laughs) Yeah, in some ways, I kind of feel like we've been talking about the course all along. You know, really everything that we've talked about is, uh, so much of it is, is touched on in the course. I would say what's important to know, though, is that this course is highly experiential. So there is over 27 different meditations, practices, reflections. We're exploring in a large group. We're getting a chance to connect in small breakout rooms, exploring how to cultivate a more supportive way of being with ourselves. The course, we explore different topics each week. We have one class on self-criticism. We have one class on meeting difficult emotions, on how we can uh, hold challenging relationships. Um, so we're really, you know, that and so much more, we're really looking at uh, different ways that we can support ourselves in the midst of difficulty. The class meets for three hours. We take a break. It's on Wednesdays, as you mentioned. And we also have a retreat uh, in there too, where we'll get to really immerse ourselves in practices for a longer period of time. So it's it's an incredibly powerful course and it's open to the public. Anybody can take this class. And it also is a prerequisite for teacher training. So for folks that want to go on and teach the course, they first need to take the eight-week program. And that's what this program is. Wonderful. I'm so excited for the upcoming course, Megan, and I really appreciate you both teaching it and sharing your wisdom and, of course, coming on to this show and telling our listeners about the power of mindful self-compassion and how to bring it into our daily lives. And I do have to finish by asking you the same question I ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Oh... You know, in July of this year, I had my daughter. She's now four months old. 
and she's quite a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a slow learner and she's doing her best to teach me. I'm learning. And I think I have never been so aware. What she's really taught me is that attention is love, or at least a form of love. Attention is such a valuable gift to offer others and ourselves. And I want people to know our need to be loved. It's it's one of our deepest human needs. And where we place our attention can offer others and ourselves love. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Megan, for coming on to the show. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Thank you so much, Zach, for having me. Uh, You know, online, if you uh, go to the website, mindfullabs, www.mindfullabs.com, that's my website. I'm also at UCSD Center for Mindfulness and the Center for MSC, uh, both online. You can search online and find me there too. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Megan, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the valuable lessons for today, including that mindfulness and compassion are best friends and like wings on a bird, they work together. Mindful self-compassion has three components, mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness. And all of these are wonderful antidotes to rumination and isolation and judgment. And you can cultivate mindful self-compassion both both formally and informally. And if you're interested in learning more and bringing more self-compassion into your life, we highly encourage you to check out our upcoming eight-week course. And of course, don't forget, attention is one of the deepest forms of love we can offer another human being. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show and sign up for Mindful Self-Compassion at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Megan. Thank you so much, Zach. Take care. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 